The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Well, we turn in our Bibles tonight to Deuteronomy 7, where we're continuing this study in this very central Old Testament book, thought by many to be a cornerstone, if not the cornerstone book of the Old Testament, where we have much given to us about the law of God and God's great redemption. And here we come to chapter 7, where Moses is still speaking and giving the people, before they enter the land, this perspective on God and his word. And we come to a pretty difficult text, but also a text with, with, which has a great jewel of truth for us about the people of, as God's treasured possession, chosen by God and loved by him. Please hear the word of God. Deuteronomy 7 at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. And keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, he will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. 
Our Father, we pray you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, and let the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, through Jesus our Lord. Amen. I grew up on war stories. Today is Father's Day, and like most of you on Father's Day, I think of my father. Dad would often tell us, at least he'd tell me, I don't know about my sisters, but he'd tell me bedtime stories, and often, if especially he was giving a personal story to me without my sisters there, I would ask for a war story. Dad had fought through much of Europe during World War II, so what I got was a very sanitized version of some aspect of the war. Maybe some practical joke Dad had pulled in basic training, or maybe some harmless and funny anecdote about him to try, trying to knock off the helmet of a very tall and big German prisoner of war, not realizing that the helmet strap was fixed firmly under the German's nose. And what ensued was a bloody nose and an angry glare, but thankfully nothing, nothing worse than that in that case. So I grew up with a boy's view of war as a series of great adventures and funny stories and interesting things. Yes, I knew that Dad had lost his leg, and I knew that was very, a very serious thing, but still, that just made him more of a hero in my mind. Well, the Bible does not provide a sanitized view of war. The Bible portrays war as an awful consequence of mankind's fall into sin. Yes, according to just war theory, which most in the PCA subscribe to, war is sometimes necessary, but always terrible, always a dreadful thing filled with with terrible things. And here, In Deuteronomy 7, especially the beginning part of our text, we see a special category of war, an unrepeatable type of war commanded by God for a unique time in history. But as we look at this command, we also see in our text the amazing love and grace of God to sinners deserving only God's judgment. And we see the serious but thorough way in which God makes a people for himself through his great redemption. We want to look first tonight at this very difficult matter in verses 1 through 5 of Israel's unique calling to carry out holy war. You may not have even noticed it that much as I read verses 1 through 5, but here we find the Lord clearly commanding this holy war which the Israelite nation carried out as they entered to possess the promised land under Joshua. And the Israelites are set to enter this land. Moses is giving his final speeches to them, which comprise Deuteronomy. And we see him describe that as they enter the land, verses 1 and 2, they are to clear out the nations. In fact, it says that God is bringing them into the land and he is going to clear away these nations before them. It is, it is a holy act of God's judgment upon these nations who have dwelt in that land. And then go, God goes on to say that in verse 2, you must devote them to complete destruction. And there are further instructions about that. 
he says at the end of verse 2 that they are to show them no mercy. There's a Four Views book out. Maybe some of you have known, known there are lots of Four Views. Four Views of Baptism. Four Views of the End Times. There are lots of books like that. There's a book called Show Them No Mercy, Four Views of the Canaanite Genocide. I have that book if you want to see that book. And it's an excellent book and one of the views I agree with from a Reformed but I think biblical perspective. But certainly a controversial area, isn't it? These commands that are perplexing and even repulsive, we would say, to our modern sensibilities. What is God doing? What what is the reason for this command? Women, children, everyone, everything was to be devoted to destruction. God commanded Israel to destroy the people groups living in the promised land. This this matter and this command has been used by some over the years to doubt the reliability of the Bible as the word of God or to somehow set the God of the Old Testament over against the God of the New Testament as if there are two different gods with two radically different characters a God of war, and a God of love. But we believe that this command is not in opposition to the love and grace of God revealed supremely in Jesus Christ. So we want to look at this unique calling Israel had for this special time in history. Verses 1 and 2 describe and actually use the Hebrew word harem. It was this word meaning completely devoted to God. And it could mean something devoted to God as in service to God for a particular reason, or as in devoted to God for total destruction, as in banned by God, cursed by God. The idea of the people and spoils of this war as the Israelites entered the land, being given totally into the hands of God, so that when the battle of Jericho took place, everything was destroyed. It was carried out. Of course, the Israelites did not completely carry this out, and the people groups were a temptation and a snare to them, as we read along in the Old Testament. The Old Testament presents this idea this command for harem or holy war as a unique thing carried out only in this special period of time when the people of God were finally taking possession of the promised land. It is an unrepeatable event. It is not something that the people of God are continued to do. And God knew that this process would take some time. So we read in our text that there is also further prohibition as this process is taking place. And later on in Deuteronomy 7, it refers to the fact that God is not intending for them to do it all at once because then wild beasts would arise as the, if the land were empty. But there's a prohibition against any intermarriage with these people groups. There's a prohibition against any making of covenants with them. In other words, treaties with them, with any of these groups. And as we read the book of Joshua, we find this one 
treaty that takes place by deception. The people of God are deceived. The leaders are deceived. And so a treaty is made with one small group, which was not God's will. How do we think about this holy war? I want us to think about the fact that God only judged these people groups when their sin and iniquity had become complete. God is the judge of all the earth. We don't know who's more sinful than anyone else, what people group is more sinful than any other group. We know that all people groups are clearly fallen and in sin. But it's interesting that in Genesis 15, when God is speaking to Abraham at that point and he's telling him what's to come and he's speaking about the fact that uh, at a certain point his descendants will be in captivity and then the fact that uh, the generations would come eventually. And, and God says in chapter 15, verse 16, and they, referring to the nation that will eventually be made up of Abraham's offspring, the Israelites, and they shall come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation. So four generations from Abraham, the Lord is telling him, your descendants will come back here. And then there's this interesting phrase in that verse. For the iniquity of the Amorites, the Amorites is shorthand for all the various people groups in the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The implication of that verse is, then it will be complete. Four generations from now, it will be complete in the sense that it is time for God to judge these nations. Leviticus 18, 24, and 25 talks about the land, the promised land, becoming unclean when various sins take place within it. And the context there is clear prohibitions about sexual immorality and other things like that, offering your children in the fire to Molech. And as the author speaks about that and as Leviticus prohibits these things, uh, clearly... The implication is all these things were practiced by the nations that were to be displaced. Leviticus says that. Deuteronomy chapter 9, if you turn over a page or two, Deuteronomy 9 verses 4 and 5 says the same kind of thing. There the Lord says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them, these people groups, out before you. Do not say, he says, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, in other words, don't become proud, are you going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And so, one aspect of understanding this is to realize that God was exercising his righteous judgment at the time according to his will. We don't have problems with that, really, when you think about some of the other examples of judgments that take place, and the Bible tells us about them, but these other judgments often are done more directly from God himself. 
we don't tend to have the same kind of objections and instant repulsive feelings about what the Israelites did to the Canaanites as we, as we, as we might when we think of Noah and his day and the flood. And we know that God judged all the peoples of the world and destroyed them all except for a few people involved with Noah and his household. Or we don't stop to think about the same kind of issues, questioning God's judgment when we think of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And he destroyed all these cities and their inhabitants, men, women, and children, animals, and everything. And we read in Genesis 19, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven came. We don't tend to think that way, do we? Or think of the plague of death on the firstborn in Egypt. Whether the firstborn was an 18-year-old or a two-month-old, yes, it's a terrible thing, but we don't seem to question the justice of God. My family saw sight and sound, the sight and sound version of Moses a year or two ago. And I remember still sticks in my mind this, this scene of the angel of death, this white, incredible-looking angel that sight and sound uh, had to signify the angel of death with music that was very sobering, just made us all stop and think about how terrible this judgment was. But I don't think we tend to think about it the same way as we do, and we might object to what happened to the Canaanites. In all of these cases, they are clear and unusual instances of God's righteous judgment being revealed. So it may help us to think about this destruction of the Canaanites in the same way. Only in this, inst- in this instance, God chose to use the human instrumentality of the people of Israel. That's the biggest difference. It wasn't as directly from the hand of God, we might say. But we may also think of this command and this conquest as a striking example of God's final judgment in history, which is yet to come. Let me quote a sentence or two from one of the articles in this book, Show Them No Mercy. He says, We should not be amazed that God ordered the death of the Canaanites, but rather we should stand in amazement that he lets anyone live. The conquest involves the intrusion of the ethics of the end times, Interesting phrase, the ethics of the end times, the consummation into the period of common grace. In a sense, he says, the destruction of the Canaanites is a preview of the final judgment. He's saying we shouldn't really be surprised by this because really it's just a preview of what everyone on earth deserves apart from Jesus Christ and his mercy and his cross. This is the judgment that is being foreshadowed, the final judgment of God. And in fact, if we look at Revelation, and we look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15, I won't read that, we have Jesus Christ coming as a great warrior to judge the earth. The image of war is right there at the end of all things. Well, very briefly then, we've looked at this command of holy war But then we want to look at the reasons for this calling. The reasons for this calling as the nation of Israel is called by God. And here we see this in verses 6 through 11. And then we're going to make some applications from what we've seen here. 
What are the reasons that God is doing this? We've already looked a little bit about the judgment theme, but the first and foremost reason is the identity of the people of God as holy and loved by God. The identity of God's people as holy unto God and loved by God. You may think, that's an odd reason. I don't connect the two of those. I hope that I can help you to see that a little bit. Notice, this is given in verse 6. After this command is given in verses 1 through 5, the reason comes, and the connection is there in verse 6. For, in other words, it's explaining why. For, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Isn't that a beautiful picture of redemption? What is the fundamental identity of the people of God? We don't use the word saints very much around here. When modern Americans hear the word saints, they think that it's somebody who did a miracle or did some wondrous act in centuries past and is revered in that sense and uh, maybe made that by an official act of a church or some church somewhere. But the word saint is from that Greek word that means set apart, Holy, the word saint and the word holy have the same root. Christians are all saints. We're all set apart to God. The nation of Israel was holy. Primarily, that means set apart to God. And as a result of being set apart unto God, living in a different way. And we're told here that they are holy and chosen and treasured by God, not because of anything innately due to them, don't nations tend to think of themselves as, be- as better than other nations and innately better? I mean, high schools are like this. I think growing up in a small town and going to a high school, and we go to the football games, and I would just think, our school is really the best school. And we are the most patriotic and most uh, excited school for our teams, and really our teams are always the best teams. And those other people in the bleachers across the way, they're just kind of not real. They don't understand really what it is to be a united school. We are special. That was the idea, of course, of a young person who didn't really understand anything about the world because those people felt the same way about us. But this idea of being chosen and loved by God, here we have this beautiful statement of the theology of election, of God's love and choice being put upon us when we didn't deserve it. He says, make sure you understand it's not because you were more in number. You, you were not more numerous. Chapter 9 says it's not because you're more righteous. It's not because you were more educated, we could add, because the Egyptians were more educated, or not that you had a stronger army because the Babylonians or the Assyrians had that eventually. Doesn't it remind us of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about not many of you were wise according to standards of the world or that you were great 
or wealthy or anything like that, but God chose the weak things of this world and the things that are despised and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one, no flesh should glory before him. And then there's this idea in verse 6, a people for his treasured possession. The idea in that word, it's all one word, a treasured possession. It's like the idea of valued property that belongs to a king. The reason that Israel is to have no part in other so-called gods that the nations would worship and bow down to, the reason is that they are a people loved by God, chosen by God, redeemed by God. And it's interesting how that wonderful theme is taken up in the New Testament. In fact, this morning in our short-term missionary charge, I couldn't resist reading that charge because it was on my mind where Peter says in 2 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then it goes on further on. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Interesting that Peter makes the same connection, that the people of God in the New Testament are to live differently from the world around them. They are chosen by God. They are loved by God. And we know there's a wonderful New Testament fulfillment of all that the Old Testament sets forth in that regards. But secondly, this holy war is one of the ways that God protects his people and enables them to be distinct from the nations. I won't go into this. We're talking about why God would do this, but as he goes on in verses 9 and 10 and talks about their redemption from Egypt, which interestingly is very similar to the introduction of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. He says, God says, I have redeemed you, So live differently, verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The people were set apart to God, loved by him, and so redeemed to walk in a new obedience. Doesn't that remind you of what the New Testament says about Christians? We've been redeemed, so live that way. And I would just add to this, we don't read it in our text here, but if you understand the flow of the Old Testament, just to know that God's special place and provision for Israel as he brings them into the land finally is part of his gracious plan for all the nations to be blessed. From Genesis through the Old Testament, God is preparing for the sending of of his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. And all of this ties into that. The people needed a nation, and God's plan was that they would dwell in this land. And now, in the New Testament time, we see something of the fulfillment of that. We'll see in our application here, briefly. The Christian's holy warfare is the spiritual warfare of prayer and the preaching of the gospel so that people now are not destroyed in judgment, but are saved through the work of Jesus Christ as the gospel is preached. Well, what applications briefly can we draw from this? I would like us to see three. The first is, as those loved and redeemed by Jesus Christ, we ought to be deeply humble 
and thankful that we are God's treasured possession. Just think about that. Think of the language used in Deuteronomy here and know that that's even much fuller and deeper in the New Testament. Read Ephesians 1. We are chosen by God in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in his sight. Every true believer has a deep sense that what God says here about Israel's status and calling applies to himself or herself as well. In other words, remember your redemption. Remembering your redemption enables you to live lives for the glory of Christ in the midst of a hostile world and not give way to fear. This is what Moses was saying to them later on in chapter 7 when you look at, for example, verse 18, and he's applying this to their lives. He says, you shall not be afraid of them. In other words, these nations that are greater than they are, that they're going to dispossess, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. So in other words, don't be afraid. Verse 21, you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. How do we get rid of the fear of man? It can only be driven away by the greater, deeper fear, reverence, love, trust of God. I was speaking to a local pastor who's immigrated here a number of years ago from the Ukraine And just last month, he went through a naturalization process to become a citizen of the United States. And he was saying, John, it was a wonderful service. And the local judge here, I asked him who the judge was. He 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 didn't recall his name, but he said the local judge was so good. And here before this judge were 51 people to be naturalized, to be sworn in as citizens of the United States from 27 different national backgrounds. And this judge, by the way, held up a picture, a framed picture of his granddad and said, my grandfather immigrated and came here and became a citizen just like you're doing now. So I'm connected to you all. And this pastor said, the ceremony was so moving and it was so informative and powerful about what citizenship means. He said, everyone in America should go through that or see that somehow. I think that applies to our election by God, our being a treasured possession. It's something that we need to remember. A lot of us as citizens probably don't even know how moving the citizenship process is. We probably need to be reminded of that because we take our citizenship for granted, and that's so often what happens with us as Christians and our heavenly citizenship. So be humbled and thankful that you are chosen by God, and if If you have not come to faith in Christ, then you need to remember that it's only judgment that awaits you unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Well, the second application is the awesome nature of God's holiness and judgment should be a strong motive for us as Christians to live differently from the world. God's holiness revealed in his standards for his people. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 and 14. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites were not to intermarry, they were called to smash the idolatrous idols that they found in the land and to not make a covenant with these groups. So we are not to take up 
the culturally accepted practices of the fallen world around us, no matter how commonplace these things might be. You know, things don't seem that bad when we live in this world. We are also used to living in this world. I was listening to an NPR interview the other week about tolerance and about how the church needs to get on board with same-sex marriage and these kinds of things. And the person being interviewed kept using the word heinous, kept saying, the church needs to catch up to where ethics really are. And he says, it's a heinous thing for the church to continue to discriminate in any way in this area of the nation's life. Just made me stop and think how culturally conditioned responses seem so natural. And anything that says no to the direction that the world might be going seems odd. You can think of Paul in Athens. And he got to Athens and his spirit was deeply troubled because he saw the city was full of idols. But it's very instructed instructive what he did and what he didn't do. He didn't do what the Israelites were called to do in Deuteronomy. No, now in New Testament times, he didn't take his sledgehammer and go around Athens smashing the idols that he saw there as devoted to God. No, he sought to cause those idols to topple by the persuasion of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. He stood on Mars Hill and preached the gospel so that the hold of these idols on people's lives would be broken and that they would come to put their trust in the true God through Jesus Christ. And that is what you and I are called to do as well. We must give no ground to things that could ensnare us and lead us to sin, but we must live as sojourners in this world. We must seek to cultivate a holy, God-like revulsion to whatever displeases God. And here in Deuteronomy, we see this command to be done with idols. We see this command not to intermarry with them. We see this command in verse 25, not to covet their gold and silver. We're to be salt and light in the world around us. And so as we think about how we live as God's people in the world, but not of the world, and so we live close to things around us in society that may lure us into sin, In a sense, we must carry out holy warfare against sin and exercise this holy disapproval and hatred of the things that we are not to be drawn into. Any form of idolatry, whether it's materialism as our God or whether it's inappropriate images on our computer screen or whether it's turning sports into an all-consuming idolatry or whether it's just seeing comfort, and easygoing view of life without regard to God. Any kind of living without regard to the true God is ultimately falling into idolatry. But finally, my last application is that this holy war that Christians now wage is a spiritual warfare against sin, but also against spiritual darkness to shine with the light of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We carry out holy war, but now it's not the kind of war against the Canaanites and the Perizzites where nations were destroyed, but now we are seeking to preach Jesus Christ so that the the change and the blindness on people's hearts and minds would fall away and that they would come to Jesus as their refuge from the final judgment to come. What a privilege we have. In 1950, when the four missionaries led by Jim Elliott sang their hymn, We Rest on Thee, the final hymn that they sang before they got into the plane to make the first contact with an unreached tribe And we all know, all of us who know the familiar story, they went to their death. But they were carrying out holy warfare to be used by God to bring the people in that tribe to the knowledge of God. People who were under divine judgment and without the gospel would ultimately go to hell. And ultimately, many of those people came to trust in Jesus Christ by the work of the missions agencies as it went forward after these four men were killed. Yes, we do not have holy war anymore in our day. Thanks be to God. There will always be war. It will always be a terrible thing. It will always be a messy thing. But the Christian does not put his hope in who wins the wars of this world. The Christian fights with spiritual warfare, praying, preaching, laboring, fighting sin personally, corporately, nationally, we would say, but knowing that we belong to God, that we are a people chosen by God, made to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Father, thank you for that assurance. Thank you for your word. We thank you that we can look back and see these really stupendous examples of who you are in your awesome person and being, your justice, your righteous judgment. And without Jesus Christ, we tremble to think of our state. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ come in the flesh to rescue us. Help us to truly abide in Jesus Christ. And may your spirit work in us to give us power and strength to go forth into the world to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.